Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is on the air. Never send to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is a call to arms for those American patriots who, in the tradition of our founding fathers, will stand up now to defend the Constitution and the liberties that it guarantees to each citizen, to each of us. That is our mission, to explain in a clear and concise manner the direct effect of each issue on the individual, on you personally, not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Let the battle begin. Welcome to Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. This is Dr. Dan. Freedom Forum Radio is for you, faithful listeners, no matter who you voted for or what political party you belong to. Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum is not about politics. It's about principle. It's not about candidates. It's about conscience and the Constitution. Like the name implies, this is a program about freedom, individual freedom, your freedom, where it comes from, what it means to you, and most importantly, how to hang on to it. You're listening to part two of this very special interview with Michael Meharan here on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. We're picking up right now where we left off last week. So we had really the first formal declaration of the principles of nullification in 1798, and it was during the period of time when the Congress passed what's known as the Alien and Sedition Acts. Um, Simply put, there were four laws. Three of them dealt with uh, the handling of resident aliens, people that were not U.S. citizens but were living here in the United States. The first law, in essence, made the length of time that an alien had to live in the United States before they were able to become a citizen, they stretched that from 7 to 14 years. That was harmless enough. It was politically motivated. The Federalists who were in power realized that the immigrants that were coming in were primarily predisposed to vote for the opposing party, so they realized, hey, if we stretch out the amount of time before they can be citizens, that means they can't vote as soon, and that gives us political power. The next two Alien Act were, were much more sinister, and basically what it did was it vested in the president the authority to pick somebody who is a resident alien and declare them an enemy of the state, detain them, and then ship them out of the country. Basically, there was no due process, and the primary issue that was problematic constitutionally was it vested a judiciary power into the president. But the worst of these was the Sedition Act, which was a law that made it illegal to criticize the federal government, simply put. Uh, you were not allowed to put the government into ill repute. And it listed out the, the entities that you were not allowed to put into ill repute. They were the president, the Congress, uh, representatives, senators, and uh, exempted the vice president, interestingly enough, which was Thomas Jefferson, because, again, he was in the other party. So it was all right to criticize him, but not the rest of the government. Well, it doesn't take a First Amendment lawyer to see the problem with that type of law. Uh, 
Well, you and know, also to see while while you're you're enumerating the alien and sedition acts here, okay, and I have listeners who are listening to what you're saying, and you know what's going through their mind, Michael? They're going through their mind is, my God, they're doing that right now, right this moment. The federal government is doing exactly the same thing. What is the NDAA and the and the expatriation acts? What are they doing with these acts that that allow uh, some functionary, a bureaucrat, or the president to declare someone a, an enemy of the state? Rand Paul was talking about it when he we wanted to be assured that the president could not order a drone attack on an American without due process. That's the NDAA, the Expatriation Act, the the ability to uh, for one person to decide who lives and dies. How about criticizing the government? They passed a law not too long ago that you cannot protest or criticize the president uh, while he's in the area giving a speech. So I have listeners who are aware, patriotic listeners aware right now, that everything that you talked about that happened a mere seven, eight years after the ratification of the Constitution, 230-some years ago, that's happening right this very moment in our country. And I don't mean to make it aside, but boy, let me tell you, when you started enumerating what was going on with the Alien and the Sedition Acts, I knew right away you made a connection to what's happening now, and my listeners know that. You're, you're exactly right, and that's, that is exactly the point. And that goes back to the very first thing that I said. Governments have a propensity to seize power. It's just the nature of things. And so we have to be able to do something to hold that power in check. Otherwise, it grows exponentially. And, and as you can see from these examples that you listed today and that the examples that Thomas Jefferson and James Madison faced in 1798, they're very dangerous to our individual liberties. When you can tell people that they can no longer criticize the government, then you create a situation in which there can really be no real political debate, because how can you debate your opponent without being critical? Uh, and obviously, when you start talking about the power of an individual to be the judge, jury, and executioner, literally, it's very serious power we're talking about. And Jefferson and Madison recognized this in 1798, and they got together and they said, you know, we've got to do something. There's got to be some way to hold the federal government in check. And so what they did was they each wrote a resolution that became known as the Kentucky and Virginia Resolutions of 1798. Thomas Jefferson drafted the Kentucky Resolution. Madison drafted the Virginia Resolution. They were passed by both of those legislatures. And basically what they did was laid out this principle of nullification. Some people actually call these two resolutions the principles of 98, or the principles of 1798. And in a nutshell, Jefferson argued that, as you have actually quoted, nullification is the rightful remedy when the federal government tries to implement an act outside of its delegated powers. In other words, the state must step in and stop the advancement of this unconstitutional power. He argued that any law that was passed that was outside of those delegated powers was null, void, and of no effect by definition. 
Madison used a slightly different terminology. He said that the state had to interpose to stop the advancement of evil. So these two documents together kind of lay out this principle of nullification. Now, it's interesting, Kentucky and Virginia passed these. Most of the other states rejected them. They said, oh, no, the Supreme Court should decide, or, oh, no, we don't agree that the state should step in. There was a reason for this, and, again, it's political. Most of the other states were controlled by the Federalist Party. The Federalist Party did not want to relinquish this power. So, of course, they, they objected to these resolutions, but they didn't object to them on principle. They objected to them on a political basis. The interesting thing that we saw was 10 years later, these same states that were opposing the idea of nullification all of a sudden embraced the idea. In fact, some of the very same people who protested it 10 years earlier suddenly jumped on the nullification bandwagon when Jefferson uh, introduced his embargo, basically forbidding all trade with uh, Britain and France. And then in the, during the War of 1812, again, it was the northern states that were embracing this idea of nullification to protect their militia from conscription by the federal government into the federal army. And uh, here you had Daniel Webster, who's really known as an ardent nationalist, saying it is part of what the states were created for, to reach back and hold federal power at bay. It's interesting, a lot of people will look at the, uh, the original 1798 Kentucky and Virginia resolutions and they'll say, well, you know, it never really did anything. And that's true in a sense, because Jefferson was elected president a short time later, and he allowed those acts to expire. But it's interesting that the debate over the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, that was the primary debate in the presidential election of that year. Jefferson was the one that was elected that was pushing this idea. So I think that while it didn't do anything you know, from a, from a purely technical standpoint to stop the encroachment of power, it did serve a purpose in creating a discussion and educating the people and ushering in the election of Thomas Jefferson. So there we have the, really the early years of nullification, those first 10 to 20 years uh, between 1798 and 1812. So what you're really saying is that that was kind of like the first shot out of the box for nullification by the people who actually wrote the Constitution or were involved in the thinking processes that went into the Constitution. We have to take a quick commercial break on Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. More with Michael Meharan right after the break. So like many of the like many of the things that we question today if we look back in history we'll see that the people who actually created the constitution expected nullification to occur they expected that was the remedy that states could and should use when the federal government got out of hand I mean, there's no question. If you, It's not like some, some person on the other side of the earth is saying, well, why don't we nullify some? These are the people who wrote the Constitution, then turn around and say, okay, we wrote this Constitution, and here's one of the major tools you can use, you know, states and citizens of the states, sovereign states. If you don't like what the federal government's doing, tell them no. Exactly. You're exactly right. And I think it's important... To note that, I think it's also important to note that this is, at its core, 
political debate. And any time you get into a political debate, you're going to see people embrace and reject the same principle when it is or isn't convenient. We see that happen all the time. You know, it's the, the famous words of uh, John Kerry, I think it was, I was for it before I was against it. Mm. And that was precisely what you saw going on with many of the, the northern states, the federalist control states, when nullification was first proposed. They were all against it because it was not beneficial to them politically. And yet, again, as I mentioned, 10 years later, these same guys were like all for it and quoting the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions in defense of their need to hold back an out-of-control government. And that kind of is a sad commentary, and we see it today. People are more than happy to embrace an expansive federal government when it suits their purposes, and then they cry about it when the federal government encroaches on something that is not within their political purposes. And I think the, the important lesson that we all need to recognize is that federal power or any centralized power is dangerous in and of itself, and it should always be checked. And we should be careful about giving federal government more power, even when it suits our needs, because that same power can be held against us uh, with the simple change of the administration. Well, that's certainly what we're seeing. We see it time and time again throughout the course of history, is that people people accept things, gifts, let's say, from those in power, expecting that those gifts will go on together. Well, when the power structure changes and someone wants to say, well, you shouldn't get those gifts, well, then that, that makes them angry and upset. And that's why, like you said, it's, it's better if no one is getting gifts than exactly. if people are selectively getting gifts. So after Kentucky and Virginia resolutions, what happened after that? Well, we mentioned the, the pushback that we had from the northern states with the embargo in the War of 1812. We also saw uh, the ideas of nullification come up again during the debate over the uh, Second National Bank. Ohio actually passed a resolution at that point uh, specifically upholding the ideas of the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. But it never really came to a head again until the 1820s and 1830s, and this is known as the nullification crisis. Uh, people often talk about this, and it's probably the largest, most well-known incident of nullification, and I think it's important to kind of go over it a little bit, because there's a lot of misconceptions about even this. In essence, what you had was a, a tariff that was passed. It was actually a series of tariffs, but the one in 1828 was particularly... Uh, problematic for southern states. It created high tariffs on products that the southern states needed to import, which caused retaliation from Europe and caused them to raise tariffs on agricultural products coming out of the south. This was extremely detrimental to the southern economy, extremely beneficial to the northern economy because the protection tariffs that kept foreign goods out, raised the price, and increased the demand for northern manufactured goods. So the southern states argued, and, and nearly all of the southern states were opposed to the tariff, they argued that these tariffs were unconstitutional because they benefited one group of people at the expense of another. And they said that this was not keeping with the idea that the federal action should have uh, in mind the general welfare of the entire United States. They claimed on this basis that the tariff of 
1828, which they called the Tariff of Abominations, was unconstitutional. Well, South Carolina went the next step and basically said, if this is unconstitutional, it is therefore null, void, and of no effect. They followed the reasoning of Thomas Jefferson in the Kentucky Resolutions of 1798. If it's not constitutional, it's not a legitimate law, therefore we're not bound to follow it. Well, South Carolina took this idea of nullification and they kind of formalized it. And it's interesting if you look at what they were actually saying. They took nullification, uh, the principles that Madison and Jefferson had articulated, and they kind of put it into a system. And basically what they said was that if a state nullifies a, an act, then that is binding on the rest of the states until, the, until two-thirds of the other states kind of overturn it. So they actually were arguing that the nullification act of a state nullified the law for everybody. And obviously this wasn't what Jefferson and Madison were talking about. Jefferson and Madison were saying that a state being a sovereign political body could stop the implementation of an unconstitutional act within that state, but it's certainly not binding on any other state. Interestingly, and you will find a lot of opponents to nullification will point to the fact that Madison spoke out very firmly against South Carolina's nullification of the tariff. But if you read his nullification notes, he specifically says what he's talking about is this kind of system that South Carolina had created. Even within his nullification notes, Madison reaffirms the right of a state in the last uh, resort to take action to stop an unconstitutional federal act within that state's borders. But he argued that South Carolina certainly didn't have the power to nullify an entire law and have that be binding on, on the rest of the states, and, and the states had no obligation to act on another state's nullification effort. So what, so, you're, so what you're saying in that basically is is that in, often Madison is used as, as his opinion is used as a way of saying nullification is not constitutional. That was not what he was saying. What he was saying is it is the rightful remedy. It is constitutional, but a state cannot force other states to go along with its nullification scheme. In essence, that's what Madison was saying. We also have to understand that in this situation, Madison did not believe that the tariff was unconstitutional. So he thought that South Carolina's efforts were illegitimate in terms of nullification in the first place. And you do have some, some political posturing, and you can certainly take certain passages and phrases out of nullif the nullification notes that Madison wrote during that time and, and kind of build an argument against nullification. But if you read the whole thing, you will find that, that he reaffirms that in the last resort, a state being the sovereign political body and society that it is, and he emphasized in the last resort, after we've tried elections, we've tried the courts, everything has happened. He said there's basically a natural right to protect yourself from the encroachment of unauthorized power. And I, and I think that's an important side note to make in this uh, 1820s period. And we are all out of time for today's episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Tune in next week for part three of this very special interview with Michael Meharan. And that concludes another episode of Dr. Dan's Freedom Forum. Join the battle on our website, www.drdansfreedomforum.com. The right to own private property that cannot be arbitrarily confiscated by the government is the moral right and constitutional basis for individual freedom. Yeah.
Thank <laughs> you. 